Well, it's been very nice to, I've had a lovely, lovely few days. It's very nice to see you here. Um, I've had days sort of admiring your, your writing and your pictures and your music. And, and um, those of you whose writing and pictures and music I haven't had occasion to see, um, that's, I'm sure they're wonderful as well, and I'm, I'm sorry I haven't. Um, um, I thought I would read, um, I'm proposing a, a five-part reading, which hasn't been timed. Um, um, I thought um, I would read first some poems of my own to get those out of the way. Um, and then I will read from three, three um, prose translations that I've done. I mean, passages that I, I feel are, are particularly um, that make me particularly happy and proud, and maybe that, you know, there are sort of moments where a, 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 a translator can sort of get behind an author, and you can feel something is, is sort of is being done with real uh, fervor and uh, commitment. Those kind of passages like that, and then I thought I'd read some poems by by Gottfried Ben from a, a book uh, that I published a year ago. Um, okay, um, so. Um, this is these are kind of these are these are all sort of early well the first two are kind of early b book poems of mine this is from my my first book which was 30 years ago uh, it's a poem called family holidays the car got a suntan while my father worked in its compound mixed with the cicadas you could hear the fecundity of his typing under the green corrugated plastic roof my mother staggered about like a nude in her sun hat, high heels, and bathing costume. She was quartermaster and communications. My doughy sisters baked on the stony beach, swelling out of their bikinis, turning over every half hour. Still, they were never done. The little one fraternized with foreign children. Every day I swam further out of my depth, but always miserably crawled back to safety. It's a poem about being 16 and hating everyone. Uh, um, next poem is, is called uh, Between Bed and Waste Paper Basket, which is like a, a variant of a painting of uh, Edvard Munch's, which I think is called Between Bed and Clock or something like that. Between Bed and Waste Paper Basket. It's a sort of rooming house poem from my from student days. There hasn't been much to cheer about in three years in this box room shaped like a loaf of bread. The flimsy partitions of the servants' quarters high up in the drafty cranium of the house. All things tend towards the yellow of unlove, the tawny, molting carpet where I am commemorated by tea and coffee stains, by the round holes of furniture, too much of it and too long in the same place. Here we have been prepared for whatever comes next. The dishonest, middle-aged anorexic has been moved on. The radio buff is now responsible for contact in the cardboard huts of the British Antarctic Survey. His great antenna was demolished here on stormy night. The tiny American professor is looking for tenure. One, on occasional passionate weekends, the vinegary smell of cruel spermicide carried all before it. Familiarity breeds mostly the fear of its loss. 
In winter, the ice flowers on the inside of the window and the singing of the loose tap. In summer, the thunderflies that came in and died on my books like bits of misplaced newsprint. I seized the day when you visited me here, the child's world in person. Gold shoes, grass skirt, sky blouse, and tinted cirrus hair. We went outside. Everything in the garden was rosy. Prefabs ran down the back of the applied psychology unit. Pigeons dilated. The flies were drowsy from eating the water lilies on the pond. A snake had taken care of the frogs. Fuchsias pointed their toes like ballerinas. My hand tried to cup your breast. You were jailbait, proposing a miraculous career as county wife and parole officer. We failed to betray whatever trust was placed in us. That may be a triple negative, I'm not sure. I think it feels like, it feels, it feels like a lot. <laughs> um, it's a poem about uh, uh, Chernobyl, uh, which, like me, maybe needs no introduction. Um, it's called Days of 1987, and it's set in, in, uh, in Munich, which is a little bit uh, closer to the scene of the action. I was lying out on the cesium lawn, on the ribs and ligatures of a split deck chair, under the Roman purple of a copper beach, a misgrown fasces, all rods and no axe. It was the double zero summer, where the birds stunned themselves on the picture windows with no red bird cardboard cutout doubles to warn them, where the puffball dandelion grew twice as high, where it was better not to eat parsley. Every Friday, the newspapers gave fresh readings and put Turkish hazelnuts on the index. A becquerel might be a fish or a type of mushroom. In Munich, cylindrical missile balloons bounced table high, head high, caber high, house high. The crowds on the Leopoldstrasse were thick as pebbles on the beach. I lay out on the cesium lawn. Is a poem addressed to my mother. I mean, after my after my father's death in uh, ninety three. Um, again, the, the same sort of South German uh, ambience. Dutzfreund <laughs> um, uh, is one of these nice uh, German word for somebody that you're such good friends with them that that you call them du uh, to someone you're on you're on sort of uh, first name terms with. Um, the whole thing it's quite a long poem but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's all one, one kind of breathless sentence and it's called Zürbelstrasse which is uh, their, my parents' last address She's moving out of the house now the sticky sycamores one after the other struck by lightning outside the picture window that my father struck by lightning liked to keep curtained before the lightning came for him a second time early one morning, and he lost his balance, his speech, and last of all, his mischief. The high pines that gave the street its name chopped down by the new people, only the birches left standing, whose thin leaves and catkins reminded me of her copper-silver hair. The old woman upstairs, with all her marbles and mobility, put in a home by her regan of a daughter, who sold the house over the heads of my parents, sitting duck tenants, bourgeois gypsies, wheeled suitcases on top of fitted wardrobes. The windows where my sister's criminal boyfriends climbed in at night, 
over the hedge, the pool where the dentist's children screamed. The old couple next door, Dutzfreunde of Franz Josef Strauss. Now I've gone to tell you what Dutzfreunde is, but Franz Josef Strauss is a conservative Bavarian politician and, and uh, ex-defense uh, defense minister um, and kind of all-around bad hat. Dutzfreunde uh, of Franz Josef Strauss. The patio stones with their ineradicable growths of moss, the weedy lawn where slugs set sail of an evening and met their ends like Magellan, sliced up in the salty shallows of their own froth. The potatoes my father bestirred himself to grow one year, gravelly bullets too diamond hard to take a fork. Moving with all the books, the doubtful assets of a lifetime, the steel table only I had the wit to assemble and left my feet on, the furniture and lamps picked up in border raids to Italy, once austerely challenging, now out of date modern. Too gloomy to read by, and sad as anything not bought old. The Strindberg kitchen with a dribbling Yugoslav fridge. The Meissen collection we disliked and weren't allowed to use. The Demode gadgets for making yogurt, for Turkish coffee. The turkey cutlets, not so much cooked as made safe in the frying pan. The more cooking cut corners and dwindled and became rehash. My off-and-on kingdom in the cellar, among the skis and old boots. My father's author's copies and foreign editions. The blast-proof metal doors, preserves, tin cans and board games of people who couldn't forget the Russians. The furnace room, where my jeans were baked hard against an early departure. And this is a, a sort of uh, landscape poem about uh, the the train that goes uh, up up the Hudson to um, Albany. Um, it's called Hudson Ride. Um, just a little bit later in in the in the season here. Um, you remember who Socks Socks is? Socks is um, Bill Clinton's cat. Uh, um, um, another German word, I'm afraid. Auflehnung is is uh, um, is leaning up against, but it means uh, rebel. Auflehnung. Um, Hudson, Hudson Ride, it's called. Red and yellow bittersweet, Poughkeepsie. The ice jags are silver, rush spikes gold in the blue December. A big old eagle, white head, white feet, perches on a tree like a postage stamp or a glorified house cat. Socks in excelsis. God, what is it with separation? A soft freeze. The woods are rusty stone, henna fuzz ravines, snow slicks. Ice blinds and dries, dazzles and steams. Swans outside Croton. I sit in the train, at the very back of the last car, ruing every mile. Some sort of folly and exhilaration, a caffeinated feeling of being all heart. Shouldn't I ask, that's a, this is a quote, shouldn't I ask to hold to you forever? That's Robert Lowell. I rather think I did ask. They thought it was the new Rhine here, or wanted to. Rhinebeck, Germantown, Duchess County. My girl, someone's girl, her own girl. Perhaps the only other time in my life I've opposed the machinery and scale of the world. My personal insurrection, Auflehnung, a leaning up against say, and by preference, you in your kitchenette and sweater, among the hi-hats and bolt-cutters and beheaded pin sculptures. Now, here come the hard options. The cracked old Nabisco plant, West Point, 
Indian Point, Ossineng, Rockland Syke, Brachenfels, Bacharach, Lorelei, Lorelei, Lorelei. Um, I forgot, it, it also has an epigraph from, from Heinrich Heine, which is a sort of poem about the Rhine, and it, it just sort of mixes the Rhine, the Rhine and the Hudson and his poem about Lorelei. Um, uh, and and the, the last of my own things that I, I propose to, to read to you is a poem called Idyll, um, which, which uh, imagines my, my apartment um, in London um, sometime after my death, and, and uh, mostly the better for it. Um, Idyll. The windows will reflect harder, blacker than before, and fresh cracks will appear in the yellow brick. There is no milkman or paperboy, but presumably the lurid pizza flyers and brassy offers of loans will continue to drop through the letterbox. The utilities will be turned off one by one, as the standing orders keel over or lose their address, though there was never that much cooking or bathing or phoning went on here anyway. The fridge will stop its buzz, the boiler its spontaneous combusting, till there is nothing but a mustiness of gas. The dust will coil and thicken, ultimately, to hawsers around pipes and wires. Ever more elaborate spider's webs will sheet off the corners. Rust stains and mildew and rot will spread chromatically below the holes in the roof, radiate from the radiators. Eventually, mosses and small grasses and even admirable wildflowers, hell, an elder or buddlier, push their heads through the chinks between the boards. A useless volume of books, who could ever read that many, will keep the moths entertained. Generations of industrious woodlice and silverfish will leave their corpses on the clarty work surfaces, and a pigeon or two will hook its feet over the tarnished sink and brood vacantly on its queenly pink toes. Grim, grim, huh? Grim. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, now I'm going to read from a book which Dorky Archive are going to publish next month. Though I think, I mean, for some reason, I've already uh, I've already got it. Um, um, it's it's by a, a, a German author I, I, I greatly love called Wolfgang Köppen, whose dates are uh, 1906 to uh, almost. I mean, he lived to be almost 90, 1906 to 95. Um, I saw him uh, briefly at the very end of his life when I was giving him a copy of a translation of another book of his that I'd already translated. Um, but as I say, this, this, isn't, this isn't out yet, and uh, do you bring it out. Uh, the book is called Youth. Um, so he's, he's born in 1906. He's, this is uh, in, the, in the 20s, and he's hanging around in his town in, in the east of Germany on the, on the Baltic, um, Greifswald, um, sort of close to Danzig, close to Poland. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's uh, just, he's a, he's a wastrel. He's a, he's a kind of proto-hippie. Um, the rest of the book is, is written in, in fantastic long sentences with huge vocabulary and all these things that I love. Um, but I also love uh, kind of tiny sentences and, and uh, next to no words. Um, and this, this kind of variety, I mean, this kind of temperature alternation is sort of almost one, one of the reasons why, why, one, why one translates, because it uh, kind of takes you to extremities you, you, you might not experience on your own. 
And these are tiny sentences, and I, 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 just, uh, I just adore this. So this is, uh, this is Kepen in, in, in the 20s. I was all alone in my town. I was young, but I wasn't aware of being young. It meant nothing to me. It had no cachet. No one asked me for it. Time had stopped. It was mainly suffering, but there was no one like me. I mooched around. I went places. I hung around on corners and squares. I caught the eye wherever I went. I meant nothing. I stood in the middle of the marketplace. I was useless. I liked that. I enjoyed standing in the marketplace, just standing there. I had nothing to sell, not even myself. I wasn't in the market for anything. I didn't want to take part. I despised them. I didn't know the growing rates, the going rates, pardon me. I didn't ask about the price. I affected a stoop. I wished I could have had a hunchback. I wanted to be an outcast. It was to be something visible. They saw it. I heard them and didn't hear them. They called out after me. They mocked me. Why don't you get the doctor to prescribe you a haircut? I didn't have a doctor. I was proud of not having a doctor. It didn't concern me. They shouted, Yeah, who's a girl then? My shoulder-length hair stood for a better world. Remember? <laughs> I took off my shoes, knotted the laces together, hung them over my shoulders, and went around barefoot. And so I felt the town. It was under my feet. It was hard and cold. The others didn't notice. Many of them loved boots. They liked to march. They had lost the war. They gagged on their defeat, and they hated the Republic. They said, we ought to have conscription. They shouted, straighten out a few people. They held their hands in front of their eyes. They wished they could cut me in pieces. They all of them shared one face. I wasn't sad. I had a good time. I was the knight of the sorrowful countenance. That was a gas. I longed for joys. I wanted brightness. I thought they were funny, eyes tight shut, creasing up their foreheads, invoking the iron time of the war and forgetting the dead. I refused to laugh at them. I thought of the charnel houses that were our victories. My style was gloom. I put up the fake fur collar on my coat. That coat was my kaftan. I had spent ages looking for it. I put on a Russian tunic and wore it buttoned up to the throat. I jammed the broad-brimmed, otherworldly hat of a country priest down on my head, if I bothered with a hat. A child in a dark stairway. It seized my hand, whispered, Your Reverence. I was Raskolnikov. I was a character from the Devils, the one out of the basement. I had stood under the gibbet. The messenger had come in time, reprieved. The empty noose still dangled. I torched the town. Atman's department store burned, a bonfire in the night. The town hall burned, my family tree burned. That was good. The law courts were ablaze. I unlocked the prison. I distributed the goods from the shops to the poor and the prisoners. Everyone was given a book from Bugenhagen's bookshop. The money from the banks lay around on the streets. Little children played with the notes, made paper boats, and floated them in the gutters. Perhaps I loved the town. I turned it upside down. I wrecked its order. I pissed on its celebrations.
a Russian addressed me in Russian. I was thrilled. I was a disciple of Kropotkin's. The Russian was troubled. He was an emigrant. He was homesick for a different Russia. In summer, I went around under an umbrella. The umbrella was as white as the baking sky. The umbrella had lily-of-the-valley green panels. I was abroad in the tropics. The umbrella had a silver handle shaped like a bird. When a storm blew, the bird flew away in the wind. I was deathly pale. I had put rice flour on my face. I would rest where I was in the way. I lay down on the street in people's doorways. I sat on the steps leading up to monuments for the dead. I stretched out on grass verges put out there to beautify the scene for the bourgeoisie. Libraries attracted me. I haunted them, greedy and addicted. I was in love with the people who worked in them. I was irresistible. The librarians were helpless. They did my bidding. They opened their shelves to me. They parted from their treasures. I surrounded myself with script. I guzzled type. I forgot myself. I sat in the public square like a drunkard. The alphabet swept me away. I was a caution to the city. I was an irritation. I wanted to be an irritation. The authorities kept their eye on me. The bourgeois periscoped me in the swiveling mirrors at their windows. They saw a sea monster. The authorities felt provoked and requested a law to deal with me. Borstals blew their view halloos for me. They had me in their sights. They surrounded me. They set traps for me which I failed to fall for. I didn't do anything. I didn't hurt anyone. That was suspicious. That was wicked. I wanted to be me for myself alone. They pressed themselves on me. The town stripped itself bare for me. It was not decent. It had an underground. The police beat you. Judges were biased. The public official abused his office. The minister did not believe. The gym teacher was a sadist. The drinkers came along and unstoppered their bottles. Morphinists and cokeheads showed their wounds and offered me snow. Tarts spared themselves. Thieves invited me out. The anthroposophists climbed the steeple of St. Nikolai and screamed, You are the devil incarnate. When he throttled me, I saw the sea. It swung grey under a grey swinging sky. Lentz was a communist. The lost sheep was to be brought back to the flock. Lentz wanted to flee the flock. He was ragged. He ran around all winter in short trousers and bare knees. That bound me to him. We swam in the sea in November. Our bicycles stood propped against each other, shivering. On his bicycle was a red flag with a hammer and sickle. The peoples of the earth hearkened to the signal. The peoples hearkened to nothing. The sirens were silent. Back then, they were still silent. On my handlebars, as a token of respect to Lentz, I had tied a black rag, the proud black flag of anarchy. Lentz was murdered. It was the ones with the pinched faces who did it. There was a Hun's grave somewhere. There they bashed his brains out and buried him right away. I was avid for drama. I travelled fourth class. I was a stickler for decency. My head was full of books. The town slipped backwards on the rails. Into the fog, into the grey clouds, into the snow, into lost time. The raised fist of St. Nikolai threatened one more time. It was only later that I felt the scars. The compartment was for travellers with heavy loads. I sat on a basket. Sawdust oozed out through the mesh. A hen clucked. A pig grunted in a sack. 
The man who owned the pig asked me, What are you reading? I said, Tyrov, on theatre as liberation. The man said, You'll wreck your eyesight. It was snowing and cold. The train was unheated, the sky overcast. The man gave me a hard-boiled egg. That's, uh, that's, uh, curtain. Um, um, then I have a book from, um, Jakob Wassermann, um, um, I mean, yeah, a completely extraordinary book, um, came out with Penguin in England coming out with a New York review of books uh, in their uh, sort of classic series. It'll be called um, My Marriage. Um, uh, it's a it's a, 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 a relation of, of um, I mean, I've, I've tried to sort of pin three things together, so you almost get uh, get almost a, a, a sort of a single a single story. Um, um, this is a here the, the first person. Narrator, Wasserman, um, um, who um, in the book calls himself uh, Alexander Herzog, um, he meets this uh, this sort of heiress uh, called uh, Ganna, um, and she she's he's a he's a, a sort of poor young writer, and, and she falls very badly in love with him, and sort of coerces him to to marry her. Um, and this is and this is the, the, their marriage and and uh, I have to say I, I don't know of a better a better and, and more sort of fearful account of, of marriage uh, in in, uh, in anything um, so I'm, I'm going to read two, uh, two little sections uh, called wedding presents and the wedding um, I stood with Ghana in front of the pushed-together tables where our wedding presents were displayed. There were garish sofa cushions with secession patterns, eccentrically shaped lamps, twisted bronzes, metal frog and dog candle holders, models of the Stefan's Dome and the Tomb of the Medici's as paperweights, nymphs with nozzles in their heads as perfume dispensers, Venetian gondolas as desk ornaments, gilded pine cone picture frames. And then there were useful, practical things books, silver, porcelain, vouchers for linens and furniture. We weren't going to set up house immediately. We intended to go travelling for a year first. I was delighted with the presents. I had never had such a warehouse full of possessions, real possessions. All of it seemed beautiful and good. I didn't think it was real, but then what was real to me? Not even my shirt or my pen. The continual nodding association with people who took these Fata Morgana things for real was incredibly sapping. Not just that either. Sometimes I got the sense that it was killing something within me. I couldn't say what, but it was certainly killing something. It was no more than logical that they couldn't help taking true things for illusions. That was their nature. Here, at the present table, at the present table, sorry, here at the present table, behind all this foolish pleasure in things, I was tormented for the first time by the fear that Ghana might have something to do with the little killings that I was supposed to agree to and introduce into my life. What else did the light in her eyes signify, or her jubilation? Certainly, she lives with a divided consciousness, half among human beings, half up in the stars. A princess getting hitched. 
a fairy tale creature floating off into new realms of bliss. She no longer recognizes anyone. She mixes up faces and objects and vice versa. If you wake up in the morning with a feeling that you're a rose or a sunstruck cloud, then you can't speak in a normal way with human beings. Then your speech is bound to be a little haywire. Pseudo-Gothic, pseudo-Baroque, pseudo-Renaissance, what did it matter? They were proof of love, proof of victory. Look at this, she said tenderly. This is from Auntie Yetta, and this is from Uncle Adelbert, and this is from Court Councillor Pfeiffer. Isn't it sweet of her to have thought of us? And Ghana's delight communicated itself to me, as though I'd been given a magic potion to drink. The Wedding and that worked on the day of the wedding as well, which was a snowy day in January. In my memory, I have it as a day also of indescribable noise, for hours and hours. Squawking women, false male voices, clatter of plates, chairs being dragged, champagne corks popping, smells of meat, sweet and sour tastes on my tongue, incessant opening and closing of doors and coming and going, dutiful telegrams, hands I have to shake, dry and moist, bony and fleshy, warm and cold, rough and smooth, supple and stiff. A humiliating and hurtful wedding, because official formal language presumed to curtail personal freedoms, like reading a convict, the prison rules. The image of Ghana, furthermore, done up in white and seeming to float over the ground, and then sat at the table with the oddly shameful, conniving smile of a conventional bride. An image of her mother wrapping her arm round my shoulder, pulling me over to a window seat, where, surrounded by noise and bustle, with timid, wandering eyes and an alarming laugh, she proceeded to tell me strange, unexpected things, a ghost at a party, heard by no one and ignored by all except me. This last was an insistent, drilling sort of impression. Then the speeches, the brothers-in-law showing off their culture and their reading, the friends of the house who had taken pains to be droll, a colleague of the professors, the professor is his father-in-law, a colleague of the professors from the philosophy department, who in a thunderous voice, as for the opening of a monument, praised Ghana's virtues, a military man, an actual general, I had never yet shared a meal with a general, who toasted a splendid and promising young groom, and expected the wish, expressed the wish that he might continue to walk the paths of science and art. Well, in all, when I think about it today, it was a concentrated parody of the social mores of the epoch. Life of a comfortable middle class condensed into a matinee performance with musical accompaniment from a mildly soused four-piece band. But I didn't at all feel myself, myself to be a dispassionate observer. No, I was in play. I was active and engaged. When at last the six daughters and the established sons-in-law, plus half a dozen assorted grandchildren, filed past the professor's chair to kiss him on the forehead after his pithy concluding speech, when he then got to his feet, towering in their midst, the kingly patriarch and all-powerful overlord of the kraal, so that one imagined the future of the clan assured well into the next century, by which time his person would have become mythical and emblematic. And when Ghana, overcome by the greatness of the historical moment, sank against his chest and sobbed, and sobbing, thanked him for everything he had given her, then I myself was moved and looked at the red-bearded patriarch as if to my own patron. There followed a hasty departure, drawing deep breaths of freezing air, 
the drive to the station in a bumping carriage, alone with Gana, who was now Gana Herzog. Um, um, another book from, from uh, Dolky Archive. Um, this from um, a Swiss writer called Markus Werner, uh, who's, uh, who's 70 this year. Um, this is his, his first novel from 30 years ago. Um, it's called Tyndall's Exit. Tyndall is, is a lovely kind of ridiculous name. It, it means, it sort of suggests something like a small match or something like that. Um, and he's, he's this uh, wonderful, um, really sort of imperiled, imperiled hero who kind of goes off the rails very badly in this book. Um, it's only a short, a short book. Um, it's very funny and, and again quite, quite grim. Um, uh, Tyndall has, has sort of fallen out with his, I mean, it's all sorts of things, but he's, he's also fallen out with his wife. As I say, I've, I've tried to make a little, a little, a little shape for you. Um, and it's, it starts with, with him, him alone uh, in, their, in their place. Uh, she's, she's gone away. She's gone away, as it were, to stay with her mother. Um, she's actually somewhere else, but um, that's, um, you know, in the metaphorical sense, stay with her mother. Um, and it's uh, just, a, I think, a, a day of this uh, this solitude. But he's he's a he's a very uh, sort of acid character. Uh, her name is Magda. Magda. Tyndall was breakfasting and noticing he was barely missing Magda. Peace and quiet at last, he remarked to the cat. At last, I can sit over my coffee the way I like to. For years I've been at pains not to belch. For years I've held up my end of countless breakfast conversations, even though I'm naturally aphasic in the mornings. I was faithful too, even though, well, just even though. A marriage is over when it's even those are not lived out. And if they are, it's over as well. So, what do we conclude, boozy dearest? Do you know that Magda had you snipped against my wishes? And now she just takes off, leaves us sitting there, and feels ever so bold. Mad. She needs to get her head examined. Well, see if we care. We're not the ones to force ourselves on anybody, and it would be a grave mistake to see Magda's presence as any sort of prerequisite for a happy existence. Zindel took a headache tablet. It was eleven o'clock. He opened the window. The sun was out. I ought to get dressed, he thought but I don't feel like it. One thinks he ought, the second doesn't feel like it, and the third has to decide one way or another. For the sake of simplicity, all three are called Conrad, which is his name. The intestine holds the sausage together. The name pretends it keeps us from disintegrating, but the compacted force meat remains flobby. The so-called I is only a foolish grammatical assertion, one that admittedly is increasingly brazen. The only reason we need our asylums is because not everyone likes to participate in this identity nonsense. And whoever doesn't fall for the planet-wide icon is accounted mad. And now I'm going back to bed. When Conrad breakfasted for the second time, early in the evening, he felt worse. His sleep had been troubled and sweaty. When he got up, his muscles had grumblingly performed what he asked of them. 
His coffee cup shook in his hand, and the honeypot kept losing its definition. He thought he must have had nightmares, and remembered a falsetto voice that had kept dinning the same message into him. The only phrase he could remember was, dietary wagon. He decided to give himself until midnight. Then he would have to make a decision as to how to proceed. What he was looking at initially was three and a half weeks of holiday. Behind him lay a lifetime that had never, not for one hour, especially convinced him. His marriage, like the overwhelming majority of marriages, had probably been contracted through love, but this love turned out, like almost every other love in his view, to be a mixture of fear of solitude, sex drive, and habit. He had not taken up his profession out of pedagogical enthusiasm, he's a teacher, sorry, but for want of alternatives, perhaps even because he had suffered so unspeakably during his own school days. What now? he asked, after his bread and honey had been eaten up. In the first place, I'd like to get so far as to be able to see myself as negligible, as the little cosmic pea I really am. I want to be able to giggle about my existential earnestness and pampering of self. I'd like to be able to see myself retrospectively as the banal prequel to a rotting corpse. And secondly, I wouldn't mind writing a little novel, were it not that so doing would reveal myself to be a self-important so-and-so who, like any writer, has eyes only for himself, even in the strangest disguise. Disquieted by the incompatibility of his desires, Tyndall got out paper and pencil. 8-7, 8th of July. To write? Perchance to publish? If at least one had the certainty of being a representative sort of cripple, what is at issue is not literary ability, but, putting it rather pompously, deservingness. To be worthy, you have to be exceptional in some sort, for instance the cripple. But this exceptionalism must not be some random difference. It needs to be held up as a normal, or compelling, or statistically representative exceptionalism. The writer can never be finally sure whether he's a crazy or an exemplary human being. Correction. The representative exception is extremely rare. Ordinarily, the representative is the common or garden varietal. An exemplary person would be the one who exposed the nullity of the average. If such a person were to write a book attacking his own average nullity, the result would be... Oh, stuff it. One thing for sure, whoever isn't prepared to get through life in discrete silence and without leaving his mark anywhere is a publicity-crazed scribbler. The end. P.S. Though in a more subtle way, the taciturn man is also making a fuss of himself. Then Tyndall remembered that he hadn't been down to the letterbox yet. The paper. The paper. It would help him get through the next hour or two. He slid down the balustrade to the ground floor. On the bottom step, on a sheet of paper, lay a cigarette end. It had been ringed in green felt tip. The ring was indicated by an arrow, emerging from another speech-bubble-like form, in which the legend hovered, Thank God decent tenants outnumber pigs like this. Schmocker, the super's claim, was rather flattering to those occupants who were not the delinquent. Tyndall emptied his letterbox. In his ears he felt a sensation of heat that indicated to him he had little doubt as to his own culpability. Yes, of course. He was smoking in the taxi early this morning. Then, when he got home, wondered what had become of the cigarette, and panic-stricken had scrabbled around on all fours looking for it. Of course, I'll have dropped it in the common parts. Which is, uh, I think, it's, just such a, <laughs> it's almost my favourite expression in English at the moment, the common parts. 
but Schmucker is and remains a dismal wretch. Quickly, Zundel scuttled upstairs, but no sooner had he passed Schmucker's door than he heard the super's booming voice at his back. Evening, Herr Zundel. Like a shot in the neck, thought Conrad, came to a dead stop, shuddered, turned, and forlornly boomed back. And a good evening to you too, Herr Schmucker. Schmucker walked up to the bottom step. So, we're on holiday again, are we? This is, uh, you know, what people think of teachers. Uh, he bellowed from a range of six feet. That's right, said Zundel. Schmucker raised his index finger, rotated it through 180 degrees so that it pointed straight down, and said, I know who was responsible for this outrage. You'll have seen it for yourself, I'm sure. Oh, who was it then? asked Zundel. Oh, Marini, of course. Who else? If it was up to me, I'd have had the building cleansed long ago. You take my meaning. Actually, I don't, lied Zundel, to avoid excess complicity. I ties bish bosh bish bosh, said Smocker. But there are some salubrious southerners too, replied Zundel, rather piano, and he wondered if he had ever said anything as pathetic in his life. Schmocker ignored him and said, Has your brother-in-law left then? I don't understand. My brother-in-law? Sure, your wife had her brother staying over the weekend. Zundel paused a moment, then quickly smote himself across the brow with a rolled-up newspaper. Oh, him, of course. Yes, he's left. It couldn't have looked at all convincing. Schmocker made an indescribable face and yelled, Well, be seeing you, Herr Zundel, and remember, chin up. What do you mean by that? asked Zundel. His voice didn't sound nearly innocent enough, and Schmocker answered under his breath, as though seeking some middle ground with Zundel's blurted question, Oh, just so. And with that, he turned and disappeared back into his flat. Um, that's, this is uh, uh, Marcus Werner's first book. Um, um, and I've got some poems from um, Gottfried Ben. Again, I can't I, uh, have to give dates for, for kind of everything and everyone. He's um, 18, 1886 to, um, and I, I think I'm, a, I'm going to read a poem called 1886 as well. Um, or I might, I might, maybe I will. Um, 1886 to 1956, he's, uh, uh, for my money, the, the best German 20th century poet. Um, and these are, um, this is, a, this is an early, early poem. I mean, some, sometimes a word like expressionism gets, gets bandied around. This is a poem for, of the, from the sort of expressionist decade, which is, uh, sort of 19, 1912 to 1922. Um, English, English's Café, uh, English, English cafe. Um, this is the, so. This is this, you know. This is from that period. This is 1920, and this is the sort of the excitability and the the uh, uh, shriek marks. I think you say the exclamation marks. Um, the whole soft shoe gaggle of Russians, Jewesses, dead peoples, distant coasts slinks through the spring night. The violins green. The harp plinks of May. Palms blush in the desert simum. Rachel, slender wristwatch at the slender wrist, cupping her sex and menacing the brain. Enemy. 
but your hand is earth, sweet brown, almost timeless, redolent of sex. Kindly earring approaches, in charme d'orsay. The daffodils are so beautiful, a yellow gape with meadows at their feet. O oh, blonde, O oh, summer of that nape, O oh, jessamine-drenched pulse points, I'm fond of you. I stroke your shoulders. Let's go. Tyrrhenian sea, a conspirative blue, Doric temples, the plains pregnant with roses, fields die asphodel deaths. Lips abuzz and deeply filled as goblets, as though the blood first hesitated at the sweet spot, then coursed through the first autumn of a mouth. O weary head, invalid, deep in the morning of your swart brows, smile, brighten, why don't you? The violins are sawing a rainbow. Um, here's a, um, I mean, I, I, in the, the book I did of, of Ben, uh, I, I, I like the, the early things and, and then the sort of, the, the later thing. This is about 19, 1940 or something like that. There's a, a reference here to La Duza, Eleonora Duza, who, who died in, in 1924. Um, again, it's very, this is very, um, Sort of, bro sort of looks broken, sounds sounds broken. There's almost no no sort of vestigial grammar. It's called Ah Ah the Faraway Land. Very, I mean, quite a famous poem in German. Ah the Faraway Land, where heartbreak comes to rest, dragonfly fleetingly on round pebble or murmurous reed bed, and the moon with its oblique light, half frost, half cream of wheat, casts the background of night into such soothing relief. Ah the faraway land where the hills are warmed by the shimmering reflection of the lakes, as, for instance, Asolo, where La Duza slumbers, when the Duilio carried her home from Pittsburgh, all the warships, even the British, flagged at half-mast as she passed through the straits, self-communing there without taking in anything to hand, sense of selfhood, early mechanisms, totem fragments in the soft air, an end of raisin bread in your coat, and so the days pass, till there stands out against the sky the bough on which the birds rest, their long flight done. And this is a very famous, then we're sort of into the into the 50s, and this is another very famous poem, it's uh, Vashlim is, uh, what's, what's bad, in my, in my version. What's bad? Not reading English, and hearing about a new English thriller that hasn't been translated seeing a cold beer when it's hot out and not being able to afford it. Having an idea that you can't encapsulate in a line of Hölderlin the way the professors do. Hearing the waves beat against the shore on holiday at night and telling yourself it's what they always do. Very bad. Being invited out when your own room at home is quieter. The coffee is better and you don't have to make small talk. And worst of all, not to die in summer, when the days are long and the earth yields easily to the spade. Um, there's a poem called Impromptus, Impromptu, uh, which is the, the title of the, the book, which should be, be called Impromptus. Um, the, the German words mean sort of the lane with thrushes in Rüdesheim, uh, which again is a little town on the Rhine. Um, 
and it's sort of somebody at the end of his life remembering being being uh, 20 and and uh, sort of jumping around in a sort of rambo rambo like way impromptu on the radio someone was singing die drosselgasse zu rüdesheim i was stunned thrushes that seems to imply a spring day who knows what dangling over the walls unbundling twittering something in light green for sure my heart leapt not the old one of today but the young one tired and exhilarated at the end of a day's hike even if you didn't drink wine you poured yourself something golden in a glass brushed the dust from your coat and flopped down on a pallet with your rucksack jammed under your head neither of them with anything in them except what you needed for the morrow a pair of shoes a son of the muses back then Lilienkorn was my god and I wrote him a postcard uh, Lilienkorn is uh, Detlef Lilienkorn who's a sort of um, poet of uh, kind of 1900 um, I wrote him a postcard um, um, because um, here's, here's a, a poem of fact and again this is an extraordinary poem really for somebody to have written in about uh, uh, 1950 or so this is um, a poem about the year of his birth um, and he sort of tries to constellate himself from all the, all the various uh, facts he, 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 uh, he discovers um, it's, it's strange and rather, rather kind of haunting having this, this poem in this sort of age of um, probably post-facts or this age of the, the, the devalued fact the age of the terminally devalued fact um, 1886 Easter that year at the latest possible date the lilac was already in flower along the Elbe but to make up for it such a heavy snowfall in the first week of December that the entire railway network of northern and central Germany was paralyzed for weeks. Paul Heiser, who won the Nobel Prize, but nobody knows that, Paul Heiser publishes a one-act tragedy. Young bride on the eve of her wedding discovers that the groom once loved her mother, now long since dead, but from her aunt who raised her, she still has a file of morphine. Do not disturb the gentle agent, she sinks back, reaching for his hand. Theodore, frantic, shouting, Lydia, my wife, take me with you. Title, Twixt Cup and Lip. The British conquer Mandalay, open up the wide valley of the Irrawaddy to world trade. France acquires Madagascar. The Russians expel Count Alexander from Bulgaria. The Association of German Cyclists numbers 1,500 members. Gusfeld becomes the first man to scale Mont Blanc, via the Grand Mulet. Borzois from the Perkino Kennels in the province of Tula, the ones with the particularly deep blazons on their chest, used in the hunting of wolves, are favorites for the Berlin equivalent of Crafts. The gold medal is awarded to one Asmodee. The shipping ton is fixed at 2.8 cubic meters, transitioned from paddle wheel to screw propeller, last days of wooden clippers, no statistics available on the Chinese merchantman fleet, North German Lloyd, 38 vessels, 63,000 tons. Hamburg America Line, 19 vessels, 34,200 tons. Hamburg Süd, 9 vessels, 13,500 tons. In Baden-Baden, Turgenev plays daily visits to the Viardot sisters, unforgettable evenings. His favorite lied, Schubert's rarely heard, Wenn meine Grillen schwirren, or they just read aloud from Scheffel's Eckehardt.
The following are discovered. The flightless kiwi-kiwi bird in New Zealand. The eyeless newt in the limestone caverns at Cain. A blind fish in the mammoth caves of Kentucky. The following are investigated. The erosion of hair covering. Whales, dolphins. The whitening of skin. Snails, caddis flies. Formation of body armor. Crabs, insects. Questions of evolution. Fertility studies. Nature secrets lisped back. Campaign against foreign words, lunar moth, zephyr, chrysalis, 1,088 dictionary terms are to be Germanized. Shop assistants cry, strike for Sunday afternoons off. The number of votes polled by the Social Democrats in the Berlin election, 68,535. The Tiergarten Ward is free thinking. Singer gives his first speech as a candidate, 13th edition of the Bockhaus Encyclopedia. The critics savage Tolstoy's power of darkness, while Blumenthal's A Drop of Poison is guaranteed a long, euphuous run. A dark cloud hangs over the head of Count Albrecht Wahlberg, who occupies a respected place in society in the capital. Zola, Ibsen, Hauptmann are unwelcome. Salambo, misconceived, list cosmopolitan. And last but not least comes the slot the reader writes. The explanation of cramp and the removal of foreign bodies are what he wants explained to him. First appearances of Pithecanthropus, Java remnants, the avatars. Rendered extinct, the little Hawaiian fellow, called the sunbird, used in the making of feather coats for the royal family. A yellow streak of fluff on each wing. 1886. Birth year of certain expressionists. Also of state councillor Furtwängler. Emigre Kokoschka. General Field Marshal von, von W. Doubling of equity at Schneider Creusot, Putilov, Krupp Steel. Um, and these are his, uh, his, his auguries. Um, 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 I think, I think um, one, one more. I forgot to say that, that uh, Ben was a, a doctor all his life, and so he, he, he's interested in these. Uh, these, these uh, hard science things, and, and he uh, he knows all, all, all his stuff. The last poem is, is uh, one called C. C was a, a pharmacist. It's another uh, sort of recollection of uh, sort of growing up in the provinces. C was a pharmacist, or claimed to be. Times were tranquil. People didn't ask too many questions. But when a new broom came along, it was duly established that, etc., and it all contributed to his downfall. Tse was an incomparable magician, shelves full of powders and tinctures. Not that he had to sell them to you, you were persuaded of their efficacy in advance. Tse had mixed up a slimming cure called Tsean that you hardly even needed to take. It worked in your pocket. You straight away started to reduce. He had stuck that preparation in one of the pharmacy windows. Among other things you could see there, herbal teas, pestles and mortars, chatty tips for dye and nocturnal events of an untoward nature, all of it defying description, unrivaled in their suggestiveness from a psychosomatic point of view. His like would never be found again. Children, not likely, desunt, long since turfed out of his grave. Thanks for listening. <laughs>